the last free place in America is a parking spot. This quote from Jessica Bruder's book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, published in 2017, frames today's episode of Lady Fiction, an episode in which we are going to the movies to discuss Chloe Zhao's 2020 film of the same name. Zhao's Nomadland won big at the 93rd Academy Awards for Best Actor and Best Director, making Chloe Zhao only the second woman after Catherine Bigelow ever to win the Best Director Award. Due to the pandemic, the wait to see this movie was terribly long for me and for everyone I was, I was pestering about this. And so I am super excited to be discussing it today on Lady Fiction. I would like to extend a very warm welcome to my guest today, Anna Sola. Hi, Steffi. Anna holds a BA in Film and American Studies from the University of East Anglia in Norwich. And she spent a year at an, as an exchange student at Temple University in Philadelphia, where she discovered visual anthropology. Back in the UK, she earned an MA in Visual Anthropology from Goldsmiths College at the University of London. And after working as a freelance documentary maker and a video producer, she's now working as a podcast producer. I am very excited to have you as a guest today, expert and connoisseurs of film. And I'm super excited that you agreed on very short notice to be my guest and discuss Nomadland from, with me. So welcome, Anna. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too, I can say that. So maybe we can start and go back with the opening quote, the last free place in America is a parking spot. How does the movie unfold from there? What did you think? Well, I think um, it's important to mention that this is a, a generation of people, I think most of the people described in the movie are baby boomers who were promised that after a successful career, they could retire and fulfill their life's wishes and, you know, have a life of leisure and be free. And now they've discovered that due to economic constraints past economic crisis in 2008, they are reduced to having uh, small pensions. They've maybe been rendered houseless involuntarily. And they need to work out a way how to continue their lives and not starve or, or be in a really bad situation. And this opportunity to just sell everything, get rid of possessions, uh, something that they were told to aspire to, you know, make money, buy stuff. So they're freeing themselves of that concept, buying a van or RV, and then um, hitting the road to finally partake in that liberty and pursuit of happiness that has been promised to them by, um, you know, all the classic American texts, including the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the film is about a very particular group of people and a generation of people based on, on Broder's book, which is a nonfiction book that portrays the nomads, modern day nomads traveling the United States, working here and there. And we follow the protagonist Fern on her 
on her road there. I like that you are, on the one hand, you're saying it's an opportunity to pursue the path towards freedom and uh, go down that mythical road of the pursuit of individual happiness through moving around. And at the same time, you stress that these, these are outcomes of the economic crisis, 2008 crisis. So it's, it's a movement that is, it's propelled forth by economic need, while it's at the same time um, a question of agency that is discussed over and over again in the film. And I was very intrigued by the opening because I thought, okay, this is going to be a globalization critical film when, when I went to the movie. So I went in and you have a, a framing. Fern has to, uh, she, she leaves her home because basically the town of Empire, Nevada, which was a gypsum production plant, basically the production plant closed down and the zip code is officially abolished. So there is no place anymore where she used to to live before. The empire has ended. It used to be called empire. So uh, that's a telltale yep, name. Ironically, And that's that's when she starts going. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a film about the big players, uh, human capital being exploited and uh, ro uh, rolled around like tumbleweed here and there. And then I was so surprised that that's not at all the overarching narrative. It's there, you can read it in this way, but there are many instances that work differently. How? Did, what did you think? Well, I agree, it could have been. And then this beautiful thing happens. So she works at the Amazon Fulfillment Center and she meets Linda May, who is actually a real-life nomad. And we'll get to that later, how these real-life People were tied into the making of the movie and, and the book, of course. And she starts giving her advice on how to live in a van, how to survive, and invites her down to this quartzite Arizona meeting that is hosted by Bob Wells. And I had the impression that at the beginning of the film, really all options, all paths were open to Fern. And then she realizes that this, that this might be a sensible option for her. And she, after freezing a lot while hanging out in Nevada. She then decides to follow and go to this meeting and she's immediately greeted by these warm people and you get the impression that this is some sort of almost a socialist gathering. You know, people take care of each other, they trade and I thought that was another really interesting aspect. She's She doesn't want handouts and I think one of the things that you wanted to discuss is The dignity of labor. We see her trying to sign on for, for a new job and the officer says, well, I don't know what you'd be eligible for. And she says, well, but I like work. And she doesn't want to live off Social Security, partly because she can't, because it wouldn't be high enough, but also because she actually wants to make a living and not live off of the state. And I think that's a really um, important thing to many, many Americans, more so than people in other countries. So they, they believe in hard labor and reaping the benefits of that. And you see, even when they trade things in the movie, they do make sure that it's often not a gift. But, you know, when the guy uh, offers her a beer, she says, well, I'll trade you for a peanut butter sandwich. Or, you know, when she gets the can opener, she says, well, I'll give you an oven mitt, which I made. So that's a really beautiful thing inside this community that they're, they're helping each other but they're also respecting the wish to stay self-reliant 
and make your own way in society as they've been taught. Yes, it's intriguing that the gathering that we see at the opening um, is, a, is a Christmas gathering. So on the one hand, of course, it's an alternative community. It's also part of a, a utopian community. And uh, we need to discuss this real-life utopian communi communitarian movement of nomads traveling in this courtside meeting. But it's a, it's a Christmas holiday. And the film has features the big American holidays, if you will, where... Americans return to be there with their family and uh, over and over we see different bonds, different communities forming, different kinships or maybe selected kinships forming between people who are not related, who are not part of a family, but who go and look for a different in-group and uh, who look for resonance and uh, recognition in different places and who find this as well. So it's a very homely opening after a very cold Nevada experience, uh, which in which she's cast out and she drives down and she's she's welcomed, but she's also not. So I at first I thought, oh, this is a cult. Um, she's you know she's got to be brainwashed and then, um, but um, the nomads and Bob Wells, who is a kind of a a mentor or leader figure, Chloe Zhao makes him speak directly to the camera. And these are, as you said before, they're not actors. They're real nomads who tell their story and uh, who, while telling the story, also remain remote. So they share the story, but we don't have any further insight into the hows and the wheres and the whats of how this came to be. They share what they want to share. Uh, it's not a voyeuristic, oh, look at what these people are doing uh, that the tone uh, for the film sets. But it's a, a display of this alternative lifestyle. And this brings me right around to this super interesting concept that you pitched for this interview of visual anthropology. I am so excited to hear you talk about your reading of the film in this vein. Okay, well, for all of those who don't know, and I, I, I'm often confronted with this when I say, well, my degree is in visual anthropology, people go, oh, that sounds interesting. What is it? <laughs> Um, basically, it was a discipline that was born out of the necessity of anthropologists having to document their work in the field. So they would go to foreign countries, and then they would write about rituals. But of course, it would be much better if they had photos or even film footage of those rituals or costumes or food or anything like that. So um, they became single-person directors, as as we'd call them, so one person doing everything. And very interestingly, Chloe Zhao does the same thing. So she, she wrote it, she directed it, and she also edited her film. And the director of photography is her boyfriend. So, But she literally calls the shots. And we want to go back to the feminism part um, a bit later, but yeah, I already yeah. thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So, but... The um, visual anthropology then became a central part of anthropology, cultural anthropology. And one of the most prolific filmmakers, Jean Rouge, who was a Frenchman, in the 1960s decided that it was sort of time to change the process. So he would invite his subjects to take part in the filmmaking, take an active role and decide what they wanted to show. So essentially do what Chloe Zhao does now, play a fictionalized version of themselves 
And then um, he also decided that it was time to turn away from the other, the exotic, and have an outsider's perspective, but let people let people in and study your own tribe, so to speak. So he made a film in 1961 called Chronique d'un été, The Chronicle of a Summer, where he studied the tribe of Parisians, tribe obviously now in yeah. inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a really fascinating document and it shows a lot of respect towards his subjects. And I think we find that in, in Chloe Zhao's work and the way that she invited everyone to collaborate in this film and and I think she's particularly interesting because she was born in China but spent half of her life in the US um, so you could argue that she's at this intersection of the traditional anthropology where you look at the other but you could also argue that she's so much part of American society having spent kind of 50% of her life there that she's also part of that society now so she's um, having this introspective view, a self-reflexive view on American society. And that's that's what I think is really interesting about this film. Because if you invite people to watch documentary films, they're often sort of hesitant and say, oh, but, you know, they're, they're exhausting to watch. But at the same time, there's this desire to learn true stories. And um, you note that nowadays... A lot of fiction films start off with this note saying based on a true story or my favorite, inspired by a true story, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but with this format, it almost it, it takes away people's fear of having to sit through a documentary that might have, you know, blurry images, hard to hear sound, no linear narrative. So Chloe Zhao supplies us with all of that, but she, she keeps the truth in the story and the characters. And I think that that makes it a really wonderful film and a great effort in filmmaking. Yeah, this is so intriguing. On the one hand, of course, the anthropology is going to be the Eurocentric perspective on others. You said this so nicely, much better than I could, turning kind of the tables by somebody who spent 50% of her life or grew up in China. So it's an, uh, it's a perspective that comes from, from a non-American background and then takes up a look at the tribe. And, ve and I'm very hesitant to use the word tribe here, but I want to highlight the fact that, uh, tribe in and of itself is, of course, part and parcel of an anthropological vocabulary that works on othering and exoticizing and uh, dehumanizing or mitigating other people around the world and calling them tribes opposite, you know, whatever uh, uh, Europeans call themselves at, at any given time. So tribe is a, is a difficult term, but it also leads us back a little bit to the logic of this community out there because the life and how they describe themselves, it is a little bit like a tribe. And in, They're a little uh, bit like a tribe. And, and also, I think the word nomad, obviously, is, is traditionally used in anthropology, describing a certain type of, I think, most of the time, indigenous people. Yes, and that is also a way of othering while at the same time celebrating. Uh, so we have a double double edge to that sword. Um, when I when I saw Nomadland, I was thinking of uh, uh, Gilles Deleuze in, in Felix Guattari's 
nomads and their mobility narratives and um, that you know have been very they've that have caught on in post postmodernist um, theory but they've also been criticized for for exoticizing and orientalizing nomadism in a way hmm. that set themselves apart as French elitists from this movement so but it it's is a in a way because if you study um, for example indigenous peoples you will find often that um, they do have a cycle in the year so they go to certain places at certain times during the year and that's exactly what fern does so we 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 are with her for a little over a year so we see that you know around before christmas time she's an amazon worker dealing with the christmas rush of parcels and then she celebrates the new year and then she moves somewhere warmer and uh, and so we see her repeat the same thing and i think that's really intriguing so it's not what many people from the outside might say it's a you know chaotic aimless life where she just sort of zigzags around the united states but she goes to certain places and returns to them for a reason be it mm -hmm. the weather or the economic prospect of being able to make a lot of money before Christmas working at a certain place and then meeting people at uh, at this meeting, for example, um, the, the Bob Wells courtside meeting. And I think that's, that's really um, something which many of the people in their homes don't understand that it's not, it's not some kind of chaos, chaotic life, but it is structured a little bit like you know, well, not like their home lives, but, you know, people are creatures of habit. Then we have to discuss indigeneity. So if by that logic, uh, and in your reading of, of visual anthropology of the film, what we see is in, in indigenous tribes of, of baby boomer Americans, mostly yeah. white, mostly of a certain age, um, who th th this is what the real Americans do, then Zhao also involves that othering of the anthropological lens of the storytelling. Because the other thing that I was thinking about when you were speaking about visual anthropology is that, of course, by making people speak themselves and present a fictionalized or, or um, edited version of themselves that they want to share in a documentary, what is favorably lost is that super authoritative voiceover that we know from traditional i i know layperson yes. i know from uh, traditional documentaries where you see now here you see the animals in the sahara uh, or in the serengeti desert doing this and this and forcing your forcing your view and forcing your interpretation yes. and and they don't do that and actually the cinematography doesn't do that either mm -hmm. so you'll note that you very often have very wide angle shots which allows the spectator to you know look around the frame and pick your pick their own focus but then fern comes into the image and and kind of draws your gaze obviously to follow her and, and a lot of the shots are, are shots you know following her walking to somewhere or driving to somewhere but you still have the freedom as the audience to to look at different parts of the image yeah so um before we talk cinematography which i'm really excited about I have to make this point about indigeneity and anthropology. Sorry, um, I interrupted you. <laughs> yes, no, no, that's okay. We need to make this point because, of course, at the end of the day, even if we see this this community of quartzites, uh, nomads, and the, the term nomad in and of itself is going to be a, a charged one in this context, it is important to note, of course, that the U.S. is a settler colony. 
and that the land that is being inhibited drove them through um, where they park their RVs and so on and so forth is land that did not belong to them uh, in the first place. So, so it's, it's, it's also, it's also open to a discussion of cultural appropriation of, of nomadism, of whatever indigenous cultures and cultural practices are there. And that's, that's a road that we can, we can also explore and look at. And that's why I think this logic of Zhao coming from the outside or looking at her own, at a certain tribe of Americans or a certain, uh, uh, group of Americans in a certain context. It, it engages this. And I'd like to make a little caveat here and talk about her previous film, The Rider, which had a, a similar approach, uh, also fiction, nonfiction approach, and was about uh, rodeo cultures, small town rodeo cultures in the U.S. Basically filmed on a, a South, with a South Dakota um, indigenous uh, family of rodeo riders and evolved around a young uh, rodeo rider who was you know, looking for his path after being hurt. So he fell, um, he had a brain injury, uh, he wasn't supposed to ride anymore, and he is faced with the decision of either going back, riding more, uh, risking his life, or working at the department store and withering away there. And the film, The Rider, just like Nomadland, I think, does what you say, it doesn't take sides it throws the politics and the problems into our face, asks us to, to think this through. Because rodeo culture in and of itself is, is white, white settlement culture. It's imbued with mobility narratives, uh, with the um, narrative of mastering, conquering the land, settling the land, uh, all this uh, absolutely abominable narrative of civilization that you know, has resulted in real genocide and cultural genocide of the indigenous population. So she negotiates that in the writer, and then she throws it back at us uh, in nomad land in so many troubling ways by using the nomad and the visual anthropology as a framework to ask Americans to look at themselves through a visual um, anthropology uh, documentary and uh, do the storytelling themselves. And, and I think actually that would be a really interesting thing to learn. How do the actual indigenous people or peoples in those areas react to these, by now, I think yes. thousands of yes. RVs uh, and staying, coming into the area, staying for a long time? I mean, yes. I read that um, at these meetings, it started off with a couple of hundred and to the one big meeting now, it's about 10,000 vehicles that come and they stay for two weeks. And in some areas, they can stay longer. And actually, Bob Wells is campaigning for them being able to stay longer in one spot. But I think there's a law that prevents uh, camping for more than two weeks in a row. Yeah. And obviously, that might be um, a problem, especially if there are holy sites in the area for example so we, we don't unfortunately we don't get that perspective exactly it's a perspective that's missing and actually also i uh, read that in the in the book unfortunately I haven't, I haven't read the book but um i read about it that there's in fact a, a male muslim character um that's portrayed uh in in the non-fiction book who f for example makes a point of parking his van facing west uh, sorry, east towards Mecca, and um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting aspect that's also missing. 
interesting in in the summary because it's you know it is I think only white people we see. There's um, a black woman. There's one I remember woman. a black woman who shares her story as well. But um, I was overwhelmed a bit by the whiteness of yeah. the film, and that was my one of my points of criticism. So the absence of indigenous presences, of indigenous epistemologies, and the what, however you want to read the politics of this uh, anthropological gaze, and then the absence of diversity. But as you said in the opening, uh, if this is a group of, of white baby boomers, then this makes sense. It's also a class narrative. Um, so, so I think we, 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 can, we can gravitate a bit towards saying this is a, a particular group of people who uh, have no interest and no knowledge of the indigenous spaces uh, that they inhabit. They just go around and they pursue this American dream of mobility. They make do. They're also propelled forth by economic need. And they're shown to us in this in this regard. But yes, the indigenous perspective is, is missing. I was wondering about the trash. Where do they take the trash? Yes. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> practical question. Um, uh, we never see them throwing anything away, but I didn't see, I don't remember seeing only, any trash bags only either. Only at the campgrounds, only at the campgrounds, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, she was collecting trash. And also, obviously, since they have the permanent problem of having to dispose of their own uh, feces, mm-hmm. um, I think maybe they, they have to deal with the trash at the same time. But yeah. obviously, yeah, if you're in the middle of nowhere, there will not be... A proper place to yeah. dispose of yeah. these things exactly so so but, um, um but uh, going back to this idea of you know the the white people invading the indigenous space this this is actually tied in in the film i felt through the comment that is made by fern's sister who's likening her to the pioneers you know she mm-hmm. said your group they're like the pioneers you know who left the comfort of their homes to find a better place for themselves and and pushing the borders out west in in the pursuit of a better life mm-hmm. and obviously mm-hmm. the pioneers were white and they did invade the indigenous lands so yes i mean that's the that's the point where we can we can talk about the meaning of mobility in the american national narrative and uh, in american national myths and in American studies, this is uh, this is well established that the founding, um, the exploration, the discovery are all mobility narratives, and these narratives are all primed on a white male Eurocentric perspective. And not only is it the pioneers, Christopher Columbus, uh, Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon, these stories that are um, told over and over again, they're also reinscribed over and over in national memory cultures, and they're celebrated. And in mobility studies, which is kind of my, my area of expertise right now, there's a heavy critique of that, unsurprisingly. And there's also an inquiry into why do we think mobility is positive and stasis is negative? Why are these things, and this is Tim Cresswell's argument, why are these things put against each other as uh, opposites? Why don't we conceive of culture as a mobile construct in and of itself to f- do away with the national container theory is that this is the US, this is Canada, uh, or this is North America hemispheric approach, where we say culture is a transnational concept of flows that happen between spaces, between um, where objects, people and ideas travel back and forth, or they don't travel. 
or they are stayed. Of course, the positive troping of that nomad mobility, the nomads who just go to Arizona and hang out there because they can or because they want to, that's the opposite of that would be uh, the unseen or stunted uh, mobilities and motilities of people who also have a necessity to go and who also go, but you who cannot because they don't have the privilege of American citizenship. Yes, but not speaking about refugees, but talking about ordinary citizens in the United States, I think there is a higher willingness to move uh, move location, change location, change, move your whole family across the country for a better job. So I think it's it's part of of the culture to to uproot families in order to achieve some kind of economic gain and and or even you know you talk about all these army brats who who've you know attended 15 high schools during the course of their life. So I think this is something that's deeply ingrained in American culture and it's not thought of as unusual. No, so yeah. so so yeah. the idea to to sell up and and get an RV maybe isn't so crazy in a way. And and I think it's interesting, especially in, um, I mean, I don't have any numbers, but I, I know statistically French people, for example, are much more likely to die in the place that they were born in. They're, they're, <laughs> they're not very likely to, to move or maybe they, they go to university somewhere, work somewhere, but then they return. So this is very different, I think, from, from most Americans. Yes. And, and still, this is American culture as we, it's a culture, so you're talking about... Uh, movement based on job changes, education changes, that's still the, the narrative of the pursuit of happiness that people pursue. So they will move for work, mm -hmm. move for education, go go different places, and then move somewhere else when, when their work life is over and they're looking at retirement. So there's much more movement happening that's linked to social, well, I hope for social upward mobility. Yeah. That you know, symbolic. Yeah, mobility. I think it's interesting that there's obviously a connection between, you know, like you say, social upward mobility and actual mobility. Yes, absolutely. In terms of and moving. Yes, that's the paradigm also in, in, in mobility studies. That's why it's it's often linked to such a positive reading. The other thing, though, that is deeply ingrained in uh, myths of American culture is the road trip. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. the nation is so big. <laughs> And we are t clearly taking a, a European perspectives because we're both Europeans here. So, uh, uh, you know, being yeah, able but, to drive. But interestingly, I mean, the West, I mean, this whole idea of, you know, the Route 66 and, and you know, Easy Rider, you know, these are all the same grounds that are covered in the film. And I, and I was really interested to see that Chloe Zhao uh, cites Happy Together, a road movie by Wong Kar Wai, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a Hong Kong Chinese filmmaker who made this film with Hong Kong actors in South America. They're going, you know, through through Argentina um, to to see this this amazing waterfall at the end, you know, at, at Land's End, essentially. And I think it's really interesting that that she cited that as her influence because the road trip is such an American thing. Yes. So again, she triangulates between the Ur-American road trip and then a perspective from elsewhere. So we, we've talked about moving because you can or moving because you have to and the way that the movie kind of celebrates the movement, right? Yes. I think that the shedding of this 
this idea that you have you live to work and you work to be able to consume you know this whole consumer culture and that will make you happy and obviously those people found that either they they couldn't continue with it or it no longer made them happy so when at the end of the movie fern returns to her storage unit to get rid of the last of her possessions and she says no i really don't need this anymore i think then she's she's come full circle you know after Mm. one year of Mm. nomad life you know she can finally part with the last of the plates and and extra clothes and and lamps and what what was in there and be free and 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 self self self-determined and and self-reliant yes so that's that's the thing is she though (laughs) I'm going to take devil's advocate here uh, and, and come back to the cinematography. So you said before, there we have lots of long distance shots, lots of great landscape shots, car going through landscape. And then um, we circle back to her in extreme close-ups. We often get her face in extreme close-up, which often remains blank or contemplative. So we don't see a lot of extreme facial expressions, which is, I think she's very much earned uh, the awards that she received Frances McDormand for her performance in this. So for, for for me to read this as a freedom narrative, female self-fulfillment, road trip, yay, finally shedding all <laughs> the old skin, you know, there's not so much joy. Or the moments of joy that I perceived often come spontaneously when she is surprised by sublime nature. Yes. When she jumps around in Badlands uh, National Park, she and she and tries to get lost. She left yes. the redwoods, and then the yes. the um, I think it's Highway One along the California coast. You yes. know, she goes down and, yeah. and down by the sea. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But that ties in with you know Emerson and Freneau, You know the the amazing American nature. Yes, that brings you closer to to yes. fulfillment. So I had this other um, Emerson quote written down, nothing can bring you peace but yourself, which is from Mm self-reliance. I think it is true in her case because she she turns down all these offers. So, you know, her nice friend Dave, who invites her to stay with his family at the guest house. And it's a lovely place. And she and I think she likes him, but she, she doesn't want to be tied down and she doesn't want to be integrated into this family, which is more than willing to have her. I mean, they're so inviting to her. Also, the you know, the his daughter in law. And then also her sister and and time and again, you know, even when she has that nice guest room with a comfortable bed at night, then we see her crawl back into her van and she with a sigh and a little shiver, she she goes under her her covers and and the duvet and she can sleep better there. And I think Mm. that's sort of the the moment when we realize that she has to move and she she can't stay there. Mm. Because I think that part of her life is over. That part of her life was was tied in with with Bo. One thing I, I, I find a little bit hard to believe is that, you know, obviously during the her sister described her as a rebel who left home as soon as she could. But then she found this domestic bliss with Bo, her husband, moving to the place where he was happy. She says that he loved Empire and he had the job that he loved there. So she, And she did these odd jobs like tutoring or being the cashier. But she then stayed and, and was happy. 
so I kind of found it hard to believe that she made such a a, a crass change mm. so mm. quickly. Mm. So so I think that there's a little bit of a mm. in her story disconnect yeah. in, this, yeah. in the story in her story again as she tells it or as 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 few people can tell it because we don't see her with other people who've known her for a long time and she mm -hmm. doesn't like to talk about herself. So um, is it Dolly uh, her sister? So her sister's perspective is also one uh, of abandonment. Uh, I think Dolly says you left, and then she says I plead guilty as charged. Yeah, and and she and the sister says, "Why well, I I could have need I would have needed you around, you know. You, yeah. um, I needed your support. I needed my sister. Yeah, and and she was not available. Yes, but okay. So this is the Americanist moment here. We have to go back to Emerson <laughs> and to <laughs> nature and wilderness. Okay. Um, yes, because that's the that's the logic where, on the one hand, I think. The visual anthropology part is uh, super compelling because that's a story she tells. On the other hand, it's such an American movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It plays all the myths, the family celebrations, all the grand narratives of American culture of whiteness uh, back to its viewer. So it's not an independent movie that's difficult to, it's, it's not intellectually difficult to understand. It's not artsy fartsy excuse my words here, but it's not complicated <laughs> at all. Uh, it's, no. it's really, I think it's going to speak to a broad American audience, mainstream American audience, because of the tropes and the motifs. So we have the sublime nature tropes, where she's overwhelmed by the sea, uh, overwhelmed by the big redwood trees. And we see her rejoicing there. We see her Stepping out of herself, laughing, floating uh, in a waterfall or in a, in, a, in a water pool, letting go, just as, as Emerson says. So we have the overwhelming sublime nature. I was always waiting for a beast to attack <laughs> when she was yeah. out there. Yes, in I, 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 one of the things I was surprised about, the, the utter lack of crime. Yes. Um, you yeah. know, no one was ever worried yeah. about being robbed or raped, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. mugged. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there was no, I mean, maybe a little bit in the Derek character. He looked kind of zonked out on drugs, mm. but there was no sign of addiction anywhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Which makes you a little bit suspicious because it looks a little bit too nice. Was yeah, that, I think statistically, okay. I, mean, I yeah. think statistically yeah. some of these people would probably be addicted to alcohol <laughs> or something else. Yeah. I mean, we, we know that she likes her cigarettes and mm -hmm. um, Dave kindly, uh, which again is rejected, you know, her, her manly approach, his manly approach to, as the protector, you know, I don't want you to, do, to go to the gas station at night. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the only hint at, at danger I think we get, you know, he thinks she shouldn't be going there as a woman. So he gets her the licorice. But but Swanky, who's a, another one of the real protagonists, makes it clear, you know, and yells at her when she has a, a broken tire, flat tire, and she doesn't have a replacement. She says, well, you know, you're out there by yourself. You have to be self-reliant. You have to be able to change your own tire. You yeah. have to have replacements. And you have to know how to repair stuff. And I think that's that's a really useful piece of advice. Yes. And, and yes. very true. But there are wild beasts uh, when she goes to the zoo. 
Yeah. So there, there are what the wild beasts where she, uh, in one episode, she goes to a kind of a zoo and uh, she sees a crocodile where she, and she is scared. And then she's she, scared of the, yeah. and she's also scared of a python that they put around her neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's the wild animals are there only they're not in the desert or not in the places where she goes. She goes to a kept animal zoo and we have this super weird papier mache uh, dinosaur installment i've seen those in utah i've seen one of those (laughs) so 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 when we talk about american so okay let's talk landscape uh in space in the discovery narrative the the space is laid out as a as a virgin land this is myth criticism american myth criticism it's 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 laid out as a a troped as female ready for cultivation in any sense of the word by the white settler and also rendered less scary because it's described yes. as female. Yes, exactly. It's awakening. It's promising. Uh, and it's a European fantasy of the better, the utopian, the no place and the better place uh, that is then settled. And the struggle of the 19th century is then to, to push the push the space of civilization all the way to the West Coast and uh, do away with whatever indigenous presences, epistemologies, land rights and truths might be out there. So... This, this rendition of, of nature in Chloe Zhao's Nomadland is a very traditional one. And it's also a nature that is, that is romantically sublime. It's overwhelming. It's beautiful. Uh, it makes you, you know, lose yourself and come back to your true self. Gives you freedom. But it's not nature that needs to be preserved. It's not nature that, you know, it's, it's there only for enjoyment. And it's not something where anybody has stewardship. So there's no eco-critical perspective there. And when we talked about the trash earlier, that's that's the point I wanted to make, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think the only uh, thing that comes up briefly is, um, is it Swanky? No, Linda May talks about this earth house that she wants to create from, from cans and bottles, so from mm-hmm. recycling materials, essentially. And, and she wants this house there to be there for generations and it wouldn't, and it would be self-sufficient so um run by solar energy and i think that's not said explicitly but i read that most of these rv dwellers do do use solar energy Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to power their vehicles which obviously is is a sensible thing to do when you're in the desert where the sun shines down on you stop anyway i mean they still drive around with rvs i mean the driving in and of itself is exhaust fumes it's like it's not um yeah eco-friendly right so opposite this american nature a very distinct american nature narrative um u.s nature narrative is the home and when we talked about what quote to use in the opening you proposed another quote that i found so intriguing can you can, can we go back to this quote is this i think also the opening of a film this is something that fern says and she says i'm not homeless I'm just houseless. Mm-hmm. Or did you mean the other one? No, that's the one I meant. I saw the film in German. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the German dubbing was intriguing to me because she says, Ich bin nicht obdachlos. So the German translation for homeless is obdachlos. And obdach is an antiquated word that we use in German only uh, in this context, homelessness. But obdach doesn't mean home as in the home place. It means shelter. So through that logic of obdachlos, I'm shelterless, or I am not shelterless, I'm just houseless, that makes a nice trajectory for thinking about the logic of the home. Because the home in the American 
narrative of social upward mobility is the single family home. It's the house. And she says, I'm not houseless. And she goes, House in the suburbs. Exactly. And it's, of course, it's raced and classed, this concept. And the home that she says um, she doesn't have or that she's looking for in the film throughout their logics of pointing to the home that's inside. There's a tattoo that one of her co-workers has. The Smith's quote, yes. Yes. Can you, can you, what's the quote? Again? I'm not sure. I don't know I, verbatim, but it's something like home is something that you carry inside you. Exactly. And that, that echoes the Emerson again. Yes. Yeah. That's what. So the home place, the home place is inside you. That's what the film argues. And then in terms of cinematography, we have the other homes that are proposed to us. So she lives in a car. We see her inside her teeny tiny home in also very cringeworthy moments. Yeah. Uh, it's often cold. You know, it's, it's not nice. It's not comfortable. You talked about consumer culture before. She doesn't clearly, she clearly doesn't need all those comforts, but you, it makes you go cold when you see her freeze at night. And then the yeah. other logic is, is that moment where She is invited into a home for Thanksgiving. Hello, the American holiday, family holiday <laughs> with all the terrors. I have to say, I have to say as a renter, the most beautiful house imaginable. I mean, it's, it's just like a, you know, such a it's beautiful perfect. freestanding exactly. house yeah, on a farm, exactly. yeah. beautiful wooden trimmings beautiful family and the harmony inside <laughs> is incredible i mean yeah so dave it's not a proper thanksgiving her. if no one's arguing i can tell yeah <laughs> that's very i mean that was too utopian for me but i thought that was a stylistic device of hammering home the fact with us viewers that this is the yes. ideal american home uh, and we see her inside and um the cinematography when she's inside we often get these backlit shots where the light's mm -hmm. coming in from the outside and you only see silhouettes. And uh, there's a key scene in the morning before she leaves this home, which could be hers, or it could be a shared home that she shares with her new family of choice, where we see her walking around the Thanksgiving table with the chairs. And she contemplates and she leaves. So... Yeah. This reiterates the logic of the home is, is inside and the house, the, the, the thing that I own, it doesn't give you the comfort that you need. Mm -hmm. Of course, she, she moves because she uh, has to because Empire is not a home to her anymore, but she has a house there, which is uninhabited. But the home that she seeks is also a kind of a shelter home for dealing with grief. That's the other mm -hmm. discourse in the film mm -hmm. with loss. Yeah. She, you know, lost her husband to uh, grave sickness uh, and she cared for him. And uh, most of the people she meets lost someone and they all share this experience of grief um, and they have to make do. They are the ones that are left behind. So again, this is a concept of movement that is not chosen. It's not agency movement. It's It's not chosen. And I think it's interesting, you know, they talk about the wedding band, you know, yes. the ring that is that is endless, like like her love for Bo. And Bob talks about how you never really say goodbye, but you will meet people down the road, mm -hmm. whether it be, you know, the next day or the next month or years or after you die. And I think that's that's a really interesting motif in, in the film as well. You know, they are 
so heartfelt when they when they meet mm. but then they separate mm. and it's okay for them because because they they carry this strength and self-reliance in them mm. but at the same same time they are also kind of relying on these chance encounters where they where they kind of pour out their love and support for each other and there's a lot of circular structures if you want to take mm -hmm. the ring as a motif starting point so there's meetings. well that's actually one of them There's one of two artsy shots in the film where it's not in the documentary style. So you see the ring and then she takes the can opener in the next shot and, and she opens the can. So you have the circle, ah. you know, there's a match cut with the yeah. top of the uh, soup can. And then the other one is is the shot of the beautiful uh, turkey or chicken, and then and see, the I roast only bird saw, on I, the table. It's crazy. <laughs> I only saw the Campbell soup can as icon of consumer culture. It's a Campbell soup can, you know, the one that was uh, immortalized by Andy Warhol. Well, it's it's it's, it's the mushroom. vicious circle of consumerism, yes. maybe. Ugh. See, I didn't see it. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy I get to talk to you. Film expert person. Wow. Okay. Uh, even more mind blowing. And that and that's true. That's but you noticed shot. all the backlit images, which, by the way, are, are the majority of the film. Yeah. They are they are backlit with the available light. Yeah. Natural lighting in yeah. the desert. Yeah. And and that's another interesting thing because going back to to her influences. So Wong Kar Wai frequently collaborated with Chris Doyle, who's Australian but thinks of himself as Chinese, and he spent most of his working days making films in. China because he loved the fact that rather than building sets of things that they saw somewhere they just they go there and film if they can mm -hmm. and um, I went to this uh, lecture on cinematography that he gave at the British Film Institute and someone asked him well how did you light these amazing shots <laughs> in the desert in his film mm -hmm. Hero mm -hmm. and he just shrugged and he said You can't light the desert. No, exactly. <laughs> and that makes so much. And we get these desert shots as well, which makes you as a viewer think you're there because you it's it's natural lighting and it's authentic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, so we have the circles and the logic of, of rituals and returns uh, and hoping that, you know, you, you get to meet again. But in terms of cinematography, we also have to talk about the alternation between the landscape shots and then the workplace shots. Yes. <laughs> Because they're so... Grim. <laughs> they're so much... And that's the artistic, that's the other artsy, I don't, I don't, it's not artsy in the sense that you use it, but that's the artistic montage uh, where you have yes. sublime landscape, wonderful untouched nature, individual indulging in the nature and finding herself and then she goes to work at Amazon. And she's literally yeah, swallowed and you have by this the crass, plant. Yeah. Almost, you know, the this shot which mirrors the traditional factories with people standing at these moving Assembly uh, lines, automated yeah. belts. Yeah with with no no time to stop or or think you know and i think she comments that she's she's not fast enough and then she got the wrong size sticker or something to close up the box and it's just constant pressure and then and then that horrible team leader person who says give me a safety tip you know in the sort of uh you know cheerleader yeah. <laughs> language you know 
how is everyone doing today? Mm -hmm. You know, that's that struck me as one of the most American sequences in the film yeah. in a way. Yeah. And that's it, it belongs together. So on the one hand, you have this idealized nature. On the other hand, you have this very dreary workplace. She also works at the burger place at some point, And it's not it's not pretty. It's not nice. She makes food for other people. And it's not super great burgers. It's greasy and, and, and yucky. And it's heavy work, but she yeah, does it. But the beach place is the worst, I think. Yeah. And I, I read that the um, the author of the book, Jessica Bruder, um, quit. She also worked at this beat place to immerse herself in the culture. Mm -hmm. And she quit after a few days because she said it was so hard, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really horrible physical labor. Yes. And and yeah. I think you, you see her when you when she shovels those beats, how, how heavy that work is. Yes, that's very heavy. And it's also agricultural work. So technically, that's a... Mm -hmm. Uh, work of engaging with the land, but it's industrialized agriculture. And something that's typically also associated with migrant workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's that's almost where I think seeing those images, you kind of get back to John Steinbeck and, and the Grapes of Ruff and, and all these horrible conditions of the migrant workers that he described in his books. And that, that of course, was, was post another American economic crisis. And I mean, she's, she's clearly, she doesn't complain. Uh, she wants to work, but it also, work is not so important. That's a point you made earlier. Um, she just works a bit to get by. And because she doesn't mm -hmm. have a home and she doesn't have a fancy car and she doesn't, you know, have any, any uh, material luxuries, she only, she, she, she can get by. And it's, that's the, the dignity of labor or maybe also of that independence that she achieves by this. And it's a big contrast, actually, which with uh, what she says about Bo, who loved yes. his job. Mm -hmm. So his job wasn't a job, it was a vocation. Mm -hmm. But hers are just ever-changing jobs, which she does because of the location and, and the money she gets mm -hmm. at a given time, mm -hmm. which will sustain her. Yeah. So it's it's more survival mode rather than doing something fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, also getting by and dealing with grief and loss. The other point that I felt, though, is that there are moments... So, okay, literary studies person will pipe up whenever there's a, a text quoted <laughs> in a film. So uh, that is uh, my thing. So so it, there are also instances where we get quotes or literary quotes that she uh, recites, and I wanted to single out one instant where she talks to this uh, I think it's Derek the young guy whom she meets twice so again we have a circle um, first uh, she gives him her lighter and then I think in the second meeting he talks about meeting or, or being in love with someone yes. and sending letters and uh, but he doesn't know how to write a proper love letter and she quotes to him sonnet number 18 by J William Shakespeare mm-hmm Shall I compare thee to Summer's Day? And it's essentially a sonnet about art that praises the beloved's beauty and says, but thy eternal summer shall not fade. So your beauty will be eternal because I write the poem, the lyrical I writes the poem that immortalizes the beloved one's beauty. So, so along well, as Mouse can speak. But also, hmm? also idolizes. Yes. I, f I found. Yes. So his girlfriend is back home and 
if he only writes to her, he can, you know, fill in the gaps, which often happens with long distance relationships. You know, you only remember the good things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you, you, you kind of forget about all the bad things. And, and then you can idolize your partner. And that's what happens in, in Sonnet 18. Mm -hmm. And also it's a celebration of nature because if you read it closely, actually it's much less about the person Uh, than about nature, than yes. about the summer's day, yes. you know, the perfect uh, summer's day. And that's also uh, interesting. And the decay of nature, again, the circle, circular structure of saying renewal, rebirth, and uh, uh, winter mm -hmm. comes, death comes, and uh, all things must fade. But the, the poem, is, well, my, the idolization will not fade because it's put into lines and words. And uh, yeah. when, when I heard this, I started thinking about the logic of this artistic project of seeing Fern as a artistic figure who goes through things and um, designs her life. So so you said earlier, Chloe Zhao wrote, directed, produced and edited. And she also kind of called the shots. It's a nice way to say it. Called the shots on uh, the cinematography. So this is really an auteur cinema film that is yes. entirely of her making And uh, Fern, as a figure, protagonist, and, and, and experiencer of this, is also independent. Uh, she turns away an option at, at moving in with Dave. Uh, she uh, cuts her own path. It, it's easy to read her as a female version of the American Adam who goes across and explores, again, with that difference of undercutting the white male tradition of of this mobility narrative and say and in and, and positing a middle-aged white woman who is still privileged enough to travel but who also has to see after herself and i was wondering if you read this as an artistic contribution in the meta level of the production and on the on the on the story level production what what do you what do you think about this i do i mean it's 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 a fictionalized account of of real people and and real facts of life so obviously the director chose you know which which people which landscapes you know which order to show them in you know she she obviously inserted the poetry why did she choose shakespeare why not an american poem and i think all all these things ultimately do direct us into into her message and into her viewpoint even though she she gives us certain freedoms in interpret uh, interpretation and and where to direct our our eyes but of course ultimately it's it's a it's a artistic product made by Chloe Zhao so lady fiction has this i'm i'm kind of trying to find out what is female art. Sarah, can you make it a different argument here? Or is that essentializing <laughs> saying she sees things differently or she's a, a female artist different or the gaze is different? Or um, I mean, definitely Fern's gaze on the landscape is different than the um, normative white male gaze. That's, I think, quite obvious. Is this, is this a feminist film? I think it's a feminist film because the, the heroine is 
self-reliant and when she relies on people most of them are other females apart from bob wells who i would argue she relies on more for advice than dave for example Mm -hmm. she she keeps dave at a distance but she she gets lots of advice from swanky and linda may on on how to go about this life yeah one thing that i found was 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 not feminine was this lack of threat i mean i I don't know how how um i was i was talking about this um with someone the other day how how women often you know when when you're on the road uh, going somewhere you you immediately check for potential dangers Mm -hmm. you know can i Mm -hmm. walk this way is it too dark are there suspicious people um should should i be on the well-lit side of the road Mm -hmm. um is there something which i could use as a weapon yeah (laughs) that's something that's completely missing from this narrative I mean, the the only time she appears scared is when someone knocks on her van to tell her that she can't park there overnight. Mm. And when she's and she when she's goes, faced <gasps> with a python, she's also she's scared. Yeah, by the and snake the yeah, also. and the exotic animals. Yes, exactly. But but those you wouldn't, uh, which is also bizarre because I think I mean, having been in the Arizona desert, um, you see so many snakes out. I mean, I'm sure that that quartzite place yeah, must be yeah. <laughs> must Falling. be ripe with yeah. snakes. Yeah. That's interesting that you say this because I went to see the movie with my aunt who is also a baby boomer uh, by generation and she said the same thing saying she goes places and she's never afraid. I would be so afraid for, you know, somebody come to knock on my van's door or somebody, I don't know, sexual harassment or wild animals. And um yeah. So I got to think that, you know, maybe it's feminist in a way that tells us women, if you're not afraid, then nothing happens, which is naive. <laughs> and I would never recommend yes. yeah. it to anyone. But it's, it's, it made me think, this discussion with my aunt and with other people who saw the film made me think a lot about embodiment and being a woman in the world and how the film tackles this. Because the absence of fear that she f- displays that that Frances McDormand performs her self composure also is striking yeah and and when i see that you know that that lonely empty laundromat where she sits at night waiting for her laundry i'm like oh who might come in there yeah. you know that that's those are the scenes where i was waiting for some obnoxious yeah <laughs> attacker to yeah. arrive <laughs> Which is sad, but... but yes, it's sad, uh, but, it's sad, but um, I had the same thoughts, you know. It's not like you can go any place. As a woman in this world, you can't... We're, we're kind of groomed not to go any place because we have... I'm sure most of us have experiences of, of odd encounters or of sexual harassment in, you know, parking garages and stuff like this. And um, we don't see her ever doubt herself in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's self-reliant in that vein um, and defiant also of these cultural narratives and that's thrown back at me as a female viewer in this context as a white cisgendered European woman who uh, would not maybe I don't know go to the laundromat at night do puzzle and wait for the things to dry 
And I think I, I read about another character who's um, featured in the book, but not the movie. And it's said that um, she does have a male travel companion. I mean, they have separate vans, but they go to the same places mm -hmm. and they do things at the same time, sort of. And that sounded like a viable concept to me. Mm -hmm. Like you you have someone, you know, they don't need to be your your sexual partner mm -hmm. but they can just be a companion and and you have company when you need it and you have this um sense of of safety maybe strength in numbers yeah and i mean she calls her car vanguard yeah i thought that tied in really nicely with the um with the pioneer concept mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know because because a vanguard is someone in a military unit who who goes out and stakes out the new territory yeah Exactly. And I, I thought that was that was a name well chosen. Yes, but it also it also harks back to the home logic, saying this is this is my capsule, this is my safe place, uh, and it's not violated. So when I'm in it, I can't be violated either, unless the car breaks down, yeah, or the tire breaks, yeah. Yeah. And and I think the the also the the attachment and again going back to the the concept of home is made clear in that scene where the van breaks down. Yeah. And they suggest to her, well, you'd be better off getting a new mm -hmm. vehicle. And she says, well, this is this is my home. And outside of the vehicle value, I've spent so much time perfecting the inside to give me, you know, the the maximum surface space and and everything, storage space, and it's and and that's what makes it my home. And that cannot be replaced easily. Yeah, you know, that's more than five thousand dollars. Yeah, it's emotional value. That's not yeah. not an option to give up. At the end of the day, if we ask the question, is this a feminist film? And we kind of seem to agree that her fearlessness is a, is a feminist inspiration uh, or maybe throws yeah. us back at our own fears and makes us inquire into them. We also have to talk about um, whiteness and privilege. So it is a class narrative, but there there's an absence of diversity, racial diversity, And I'd be I'd be super curious to know, and that's a that's a question that can't be answered here. But why are there so many people of color in that nomad community? It seems to me we didn't see any. Maybe so they didn't want to go on camera. Uh, that's the that's the the gap that we don't know about. But um, if this is as wide as it is displayed, then it also means that it's an exclusive community. It's an, an enclave of it's an in group of of people that you know other people cannot will not are not asked to join so maybe the gift giving and the sharing or the exchange trade economy is based on white privilege i think to a certain extent yes although i think that the the book suggests that there were more diverse yeah, characters okay. um so maybe this is this is a choice that chloe Zhao made but maybe also a case of you know who wanted to participate and and whose stories worked best mm. I think she talked about not wanting to politicize her film and wanting to be to, for it to be a sort of universal story. So obviously it's bad mm. if, if universal Means is considered white. to be white yeah. because then we're back in the yeah. normalizing where whiteness. we don't want to be. Yeah, yeah. Where we don't want to be anymore. Yeah. But I think one thing she said was, you know, if if my parents watch this in China, it can't be such a specific problem i wanted to be about you know the loss of a loved one the loss of a home mm. 
illness, something that everyone in the world can identify with. So it needed to have that universality. Okay. But I agree that it's it's actually a bad idea to make that universality a, a white vision. And it's especially curious coming from, we see, a, um, a person of color. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, of course, when we make the argument, these are all people dispersed by um, the 2008 crash, then those are going to be the ones who are privileged enough, who still have the van, who can still travel. Yeah, exactly. Those are uh, the white middle class baby boomers uh, who see their American dream, as you said in the opening, uh, you know, go up in flames or, or go into ashes before their eyes. So it is going to be a, a privileged version. And it's a very distinct story that she tells of, of the economic crisis of 2008. Yeah, what's also interesting is that they all appear to be single. Yeah. So there are no families. I mean, we see we see a black family in the campground celebrating their daughter's birthday, but they I think they they're just normal campers. They're not van dwellers. But everyone else and whether this is this is a spatial constraint of of the RV or or just, you know, obviously it might be easier to live by yourself in such a small space. But I thought it's it's curious that they, they all took this decision after, you know, maybe losing their, their partner mm. or or uh, whether by for, because of death mm. or, or a breakup. So if we do hark back to the argument about visual anthropology, then it's going to be an argument about a very distinct white tribe. Mm -hmm. which we started out with, which I find so intriguing because uh, you ta you started yeah. talking about the baby boomers and this generation, very distinct generation of, of uh, white middle-class Americans. So in this sense, this anthropological gaze shows us not what the Americans do, <laughs> but what the 50-something single Americans who have come to a standstill in their life or have, have run into trouble in their life what well, they do, they take to the road and then they meet somewhere in the desert and they go in circles and they scrape by. And I and I would argue that in the mainstream view, they are the other. Because, you know, this this lady um, who Fern runs into at the store who's with the two daughters, um, who's so concerned about her and she's clearly thinking this, you know, you, I think she also invites her to live with her, you know, and she says, you know, you can't do this this is this is not a life mm. and fern disagrees she says no i'm I'm fine you know i'm, I'm doing well i'm doing what i want to do mm. Mm. yeah so there's this sense of otherness imposed on her by these people whom she then has to withdraw from because it makes her feel uneasy and there's no acceptance but in the community there is acceptance and that's that's a logic of critical whiteness also so separating a group of, of white privileged nomads from the white mainstream home dwellers with the families. And they're all white Americans <laughs> at the end yep. of the day um, who are in this imbroglio together. Good. So let's go back to the opening quote. The only free space is a parking space. What do we do with this quote? It's a new frontier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> those, yeah. those of us who can't afford to fly to space, mm -hmm. <laughs> like Elon Musk, mm -hmm. they, uh, they have to make do with a parking spot mm -hmm. because everywhere else people tell you what to do and how to mm -hmm. live your life. Which would be another reiteration of settler culture and, and the troping of freedom in this vein. 
it, it's I think that's a, that might be a, a good reading, but it also harks back to the logic of freedom in the American myth criticism or in the American myth. Well, it's, isn't it a little bit also like it's 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 sort of like Walden Pond. You know, you have your free life, but then also Walden Pond is like 10 minutes from the next town. So if you want to, you can still buy your Twinkies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, a parking spot is going to be only a parking spot destined for your car, for your tool yeah. of mobility for your vehicle. Because if you don't have a car, you don't need a parking spot. So you have no trouble, basically, which is why I, I like the quote for all its <laughs> different layers. <laughs> um And uh, again, it's it's oblivious to the destruction of the living space that's been done through cars and through mobility cultures to begin with. So uh, freedom is again an object uh, an, an object of of consumerism. Uh, it's yeah something that you need and that you long for and that's ideologically ideologically marked as as something that's positive while at the same time totally oblivious to the conditions of living in America and being in America in and of itself. I think that's a great conclusion. Thank you very much, Anna. This was so uh, intriguing. I'm really excited that you got to be here. Thank you for being a wonderful expert and a conversation-inspiring partner. <laughs> Thank um, you for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> and uh, let's hope we can meet soon and go to the movies together. Yes, that would be lovely. Thank you. Bye-bye. I love that. Bye. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.